that would be a great book, Common Grace for Dinosaurs. Well, welcome back to uh, Chats in Cabin 15. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see, today we have me, Steve Petty. Brandon Morrow. Anthony Perry, and a special guest. I'm Jesse Ortel. Jesse Ortel, what are you doing here? Hanging out. What do you do for life? What do you do at Good News? Well, for life, let's see, full-time student. What are you studying? Mechanical engineering. Are you good? At mechanical engineering? Sure. Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on the day. Uh, here at Good News, I work with the high schoolers. Very good. Well, thanks for joining us. Are you good at that? Uh, yes. Depends on the day as well. <laughs> Very good. I, I would say he The is. best. <laughs> yeah, so uh, this first season of Chats from Cabin 15, we've been kind of running alongside our sermon series, Sorry, I'm Not Sorry. And in the podcast, we have been talking about some of the difficult questions that can come up when you're talking to you know people who aren't Christians, people who are non-believers, and you are you know attempting to reasonably defend your faith with them. So so we've ta- tackled topics about the reliability of scripture, the resurrection, uh, the problem of pain. And today, what's our topic, Brandon? We're talking about uh, can science and faith coincide? Mm, can they coexist? Yes, can they coexist? And the general response from the peanut gallery is? Yes. 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 <laughs> yes. And, and this knowing that we all have different perspectives, too, on different scientific <laughs> biblical theological topics sure. uh, but what so why does the question even exist like what are people getting at when when they ask a question like can science and faith coexist yeah what's Com- the problem yeah common misconception that a lot of people have is that the two are diametrically opposed and this is usually you know based off of elementary education discussion of evolution and dinosaurs and since we don't find dinosaurs in the bible they can't possibly exist and this is a you know a conservative conservative fundamentalism kind of stance that says that science and the christian faith are opposed to one another but on the un, on the other let's use the word progressive i don't know that that's helpful but on the progressive end it says no that the two can actually go hand in hand and there's a lot of scientific figures who are cool and excited about the christian faith science mike um who's made popular on the 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 liturgists podcast um we also have the always delightful ken ham (laughs) uh i'm sure there are some other people jonathan wells sure francis collins the scientist who led the genome product project that decoded the genome yeah, I think it's a misconception to think that like the majority of scientists are anti-religion, anti-faith. Oh, yeah. Um, I've got a book here in front of me that's filled with quotes by uh, a bunch of scientists who talk about how the nature of the universe, like its design, the fact that there's something instead of nothing, like all lead them to believe that there is there is some sort of God. And not every case, like what we would consider like the God of Christianity or Judaism, the, the God Yahweh, but that there has to be some sort of intelligent mind out there mm-hmm. uh, to put together a universe that has things like reason and intelligence and consciousness. So, yeah, I think it's it's a mistake to just say automatically that Christians and scientists are engaged in this, like, great battle for, for you know, people's hearts and souls. Bill Nye the Science Guy versus everyone else. <laughs> Which is not, yeah, again, not true. I think one of the questions that often comes up when it deals with those of faith is whether or not you have to adhere to a young earth 
belief. Do you have to hold to the traditional conservative biblical view that uh, the Bible records the history of the world and therefore the age of the world has to be able to be accounted for within those pages of scripture? Um, which then requires you to hold to what would be considered a young earth view, that the earth is about 6,000 years old. And I think that's one of the questions that often comes up among those people of faith, that there are people of faith that have a different viewpoint on the age of the earth themselves. So you're, you're talking, you're mentioning the Genesis 1 and 2 creation account. So let's quickly go around the table and espouse positions on young earth, old earth. Jesse? Do you want me to start? Yeah. All right. I take the stance on an old earth. Why? Why? First thing is the very first word in the Hebrew Bible is reshit. Reshit meaning period, not specifically day, like the start of it. The word day in the in the creation story also doesn't have enough context to make it a 24-hour period versus a length of time period. I am someone who probably would fully agree with what Jesse just said. I, I, I think the way I described it when Anthony and I were talking about this at one point in time is I'm someone that does not have an issue with an old Earth view. I, I can actually be okay with either view. However, just on my personal experience and study, I would probably more readily accept an old earth view. Mm-hmm. But I would probably classify myself as someone who just says, you know, I- I'm okay with either view. Um, and can have conversations about it from both perspectives. One of those odd ministerial types that took 32 hours of science in college <laughs> and believe that uh, there is enough archaeological evidence to support that the earth is more than 6,000 years old Mm. but I don't think that contradicts scripture in that. Yeah, so I would put myself also in an old earth old universe. Uh, It's an old universe after all kind of camp. (laughs) It's not a great song. It's an old universe after all. (laughs) Yeah, and and I think, you know, probably the the nuances of where like me and Jesse or me, me or Steve would differ has to do with like how exactly God sets that up, how involved or how much intervention does God do uh, in in the creationary process? Uh, Is evolution, um, you know, the the evolution as an explanation of the the multiplicity of species, uh, a good enough theory on its own uh, Mm. to explain that, uh, to which, you know, Steve is shaking his head no. (laughs) Um, I was shaking because the camera's not on. (laughs) (laughs) Let the record show. And uh, and I'm okay saying that it's still God who has to be the first cause of all things. It's still God who has to be the one who sets up the laws of the universe, who even sets up laws like natural selection, all of that, uh, but who spins the universe into motion and, and then allows those laws to kind of do their thing. And that would be kind of the spectrum of belief where uh, I would be even a little bit further uh, from maybe the traditional uh, I would say the recently traditional views on, on Genesis 1 and 2. At least myself. Yes, it does. I will not adopt a young earth or old earth perspective. And and this is for the sake of how we should look at Genesis 1 and 2. It's not like a 
document that that accurately details the creation accounts millions of years ago or thousands of years ago. But we see the purpose of Genesis 1 and 2 as as God intended, to use terrible language, that uh, all things are kept in relationship to one another mm-hmm. in purity and wholeness. And uh, what we see in Genesis 1 and 2 in the garden, so to speak, God's dwelling place with man in relationship, the strolling path, if you will, together with God and his creation, is a future picture of what happens in Jesus and the restoration of all things in Revelation 21 and 22. And so the creation account, when we talk about old earth, young earth, is the red herring in the story. Sure. It's meant to distract us. And so I'm going to be that guy and say um, Hebrew poetry it's meant to show us that all things were kept in relationship with one another. And that's the safe route, so no one hates me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. And, and, and I don't think any one of us would disagree. I'm going to plug a resource. John Walton's Lost World of Genesis 1 is just a immensely helpful resource in understanding uh, the context, the time, the culture in which Genesis 1 and 2 were written. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, when we approach uh, Genesis 1 and 2 with the wrong kinds of questions, we're going to get the wrong kinds of answers. Uh, so John Walton talks about... Um, materialistic origins uh, so stuff dealing with matter and space and time Uh, and those are really really interesting questions in the 20th and 21st century uh, where we have some of the tools of modern science that make materialistic uh, origins questions super fascinating Mm -hmm. Uh, but those are not the kinds of questions that that an ancient Jew or an ancient Eastern person was asking they were asking questions of function uh, and meaning and purpose Uh, and so all of a sudden Genesis 1 and 2 comes into a whole lot clearer focus when you come asking the right kinds of questions of the text. What is the function of the cosmos? What is the purpose of the human relationship? Uh, why do we exist? What kind of God is, is creating us? When you contrast Genesis 1 and 2 with the other creation stories that were out there at the, at the same time that, that Genesis was written, um, you see really, really, really big differences between the God Yahweh, who creates out of what seems like an act of joy and love as opposed to like the Sumerian or Babylonian gods who create humans on accident. They get into a wrestling match and the sweat drips onto the onto the earth and accidentally creates these humans which they then enslave to, to give them sacrifices. Um, the, the god presented in Genesis is totally different than that. It's this intentional bending down, breathing life into them kind of action. Yeah, I agree. And yeah, you can't dismiss the oratorical influence, you know, the way that uh, you know contextual stories were told. You know, like you said, like even Jesus speaking things into creation. For example, like when we see that the the earth was covered with water and the spirit hovered over the waters, kind of thing. That it's this picture that God instills His own shalom, His peace over an otherwise chaotic and or unordered space and world, mm-hmm. which would have been a huge story for the ancient reader here. Mm-hmm. I think something that the two of you were kind of hitting on that I believe is that the Bible was not intended to be a history of the world document. It was not intended to be this all-encompassing guide of how the world and the universe came to be. Instead, it is a, a document that shares with us God's relationship with mankind through one lineage. It does not account for 
all the other people talked about in the first book of the Bible. And so it's not an all-encompassing, every question answered resource. Instead, it is something that allows us to see God's desire to have relationship with mankind and the restorative work that he sets about mm-hmm. in order to bring that to pass. And, and I think another thing about the young earth, old earth debate is the is the depletion of mystery because we're just dying to figure out the intricate details. And uh, I, I'm, I, for one, am one that likes to uphold the mystery. I'm okay with not knowing. Uh, I had a professor in college who says, I don't big K know. I don't know what that means. <laughs> I, don't, I don't big K know all cereal? the details. That's special K. Special K. I don't, <laughs> I, I don't <laughs> special K know. I don't special K know all the details. <laughs> of, and, that, and that's perfectly okay. Um, um, because I still trust in a sovereign, thoughtful, loving, merciful creator that reveals himself in the person of Jesus. And I believe in his justice and his mercy. Justness might be a better word. And so, you know, I think I want to uphold the mystery. And, and certainly, let's think like the biblical identity of mystery. The greatest mystery of all has been revealed to us in the person of Christ. Mystery, by a biblical definition, is something that no one else knew about is suddenly common knowledge. And so something that people did not know, who is God revealed in flesh, has now been unveiled to us in the person of Jesus. And so, um, like, that's the mystery that I'm excited about. Mm-hmm. And other things, I'm like, well, that sounds cool. Dinosaurs? Maybe. Jurassic Park? Yes. <laughs> so I'll take it. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the pushbacks that is a shutdown argument for those that hold to science only. Yeah. One of the shutdown arguments is is that religion or faith is a crutch for the weak-minded mm-hmm. to put themselves at peace that uh, they don't want to believe that life just ends. Yeah. Mm. Um, and so they hold to this idea of faith as this escape plan. And I'd be curious to know some of your guys' response to because that's a shutdown argument. Yeah, right. Um, it, it, it's an attack on on your belief system in such a way that they do not anticipate a response to it. Yeah, I feel like any argument has to start with two extremes. It's probably not going to be all that helpful. Uh, so there is like there is a worldview out there. There are two two worldviews out there of uh, fideism or fideism, f i d e i s m, uh, which is that faith is inherently opposed to reason. So you know, to, can be somewhat encapsulated in the bumper sticker like God says it, I believe it. That settles it. <laughs> The Bible tells me so. Um, and, like, I'm never going to give it any critical thought. And, like, I tell you what, that's not my belief system. I'm not a, a fideist. Fideist. Uh, Fridayist? <laughs> I like Friday. <laughs> I do like Friday. Yeah. And that would be the diametrically opposed idea to scientism. Uh, that science, materialistic science, gives answers to all possible questions, which just can't, can't be true. Science can't explain uh, things like the moral law. Science can't explain uh, things like how did consciousness arise from pure matter. Healthy, good scientists admit that, but uh, people like Bill, Bill Maher and, you know, uh, scientism kind of adherence, uh, those are the diametrically opposed. So to say that, like, faith is a crutch or faith is just this you know, inherent diametrically opposed to reason. Like, I don't know who you're talking to. I don't know a lot of people like that. I know a few. Uh, I don't know a lot of people like that. Uh, And for me, like, 
my faith is not opposed to reason, and I, and I find my faith actually uh, comes from some like really good reasoned arguments. Philosophers and scientists who sit, who look at the evidence and say there has to be more than this. Even from a scriptural perspective, so let's talk about the idea of common grace. That since the foundation of the earth, there has been placed in us this intrinsic knowledge of something else, of the divine, if you will. Mm-hmm. And um, while I don't necessarily think that common grace allows us to make moral declarations about life, but this answers the Romans one question of, well, what do we do with this intrinsic desire that our worship has to go somewhere? Yeah. A- and. If it's unknown, if it's not properly declared as a person of Jesus, let's look all the way through history mm-hmm. that we are going to put our faith in something or someone if we don't know where the faith belongs to. And so I'm going to say that there's this common grace accessible to all that'll point us to, and and then again, you know, this doesn't do a good job of answering the question of reasoning and consciousness, but it certainly does have, a, uh, it's a source, it's a point of origin discussion about where does reasoning, where does conscious consciousness come from? Yeah. I'm curious if you had to give a two minute answer to someone, and that's the midst of the conversation, that the reason you're having the conversation and it comes up that they're not a person of faith they they don't believe there is a god um you know it's it's just a crutch how do you answer the person in that moment i think the first thing i would go to like immediately would be the something from nothing argument Mm -hmm. i think that's where I would start. Like, explain to me then where this came from. Absolutely nothing. Science proves that can't happen. The Big Bang, duh. <laughs> yeah, Big Bang. I guess we could go there. Yeah. But where'd the Big Bang come from? Primordial ooze, Ninja Turtles. <laughs> Ninja Turtles. <laughs> yeah. Well, no. Nah, yeah. I lost the argument. Throw <laughs> <laughs> Ninja Turtles in it. All right. But yeah, I think that's where I would start. Yeah, yeah, precisely. Like, no matter who you are, if you're on the fideism or the scientism, I'm just going to say it differently every time. Uh, Like, you ultimately have faith in something. Right. That either there is a God that, you know, started the universe, or that the universe is an infinite set that just just explains itself uh, and has properties of laws of nature and all that stuff, which almost begins to sound like God. Yeah, I think at the base of it, you in, you believe in a creator, even if you say you don't. Right. Yeah, there, there's an inherent level of faith in whatever your belief system is. If you believe that there is no God and that we came to be purely on the theory of evolution, that somewhere along the way matter existed and life came from the non-living and progressed to the different species that we have today. In that belief system, there's still an element of faith. There's so many elements of faith. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I didn't want to exaggerate it, but yes, there's a lot. Um, and actually, to me, there's more faith required for that belief system than there is in the idea that there is an intelligent being of God. So this goes back to the cutting the Gordian knot. Like, what is the more simple answer? That inexplicably, there has always been matter and energy, even though that, like, breaks all possible known laws of science. Right. Okay, so that's one. You cannot create or destroy matter. Yep. Inexplicably, that matter um, all of a sudden arranged itself into life. 
inexplicably that that life knew how to uh, replicate and reproduce, inexplicably that there was DNA code that like there there's no possible in between step. Like you just there are so many places where you have to decide. Well, it just happened. Uh, Paul Davies, he's a, a philosopher of science. He says science can only proceed if a scientist adopts an essentially theological worldview. Nobody asks where the laws of physics come from, but even the most atheistic scientist accepts as an act of faith the existence of a law-like order in nature that's at least in part comprehensible to us. The fact that we even have the ability to reason and comprehend the universe and assume that the universe is reasonable is an act of faith. And so is it more reasonable to believe that this, like, you just have these impossible set of circumstances piled on top of each other, Mm -hmm. impossible cubed, Mm -hmm. (laughs) or a single answer, that there is a omnipotent, omniscient, beyond matter and time, God. Right. That was more than two minutes. <laughs> but that was like four of them. Yeah, right. And well, well, that's poor, silly person walking into this room. I mean, they're just going to yeah. get. Well, <laughs> and I think that was all, in a sense, the intelligent design implication by all three of you. So then let's bring some evidence of intelligent design. I love the Bombardier Beetle. So the Bombardier Beetle, and this is kind of a fun thing, it can, it emits toxic gases from its rear end. <laughs> but um, it shoots, as we all do every day, it shoots <laughs> it shoots two different ones, two different strains. And if they were to cross, the Bombardier Beetle would explode. Yeah. And so when we talk about like the anatomical design of the Bombardier Beetle, like what are its origins? Where are its beginnings? I actually know a guy who was a biogen geneticist and the, one of his big elements of coming to faith is that he could not explain the the anatomical structure and origins the evolutionary pattern of the bombardier beetle and he was so stumped and it was kind of like that big moment of like the bombardier beetle is an element that is reminiscent of intelligent design and the intelligent designer. A, f- a final thought for me is, you know, as we raise up uh, children yeah. and raise up uh, other, you know, fellow brothers and sisters in the faith, uh, I think we we want to, on the one hand, like strengthen and gird people uh, to not be tossed about by every wave of doctrine mm-hmm. um, and every you know wave of of whatever's popular in science these days, um, where ultimately our faith is in God, is in a, is in a Creator. Uh, but on the other hand, to not create a system so diametrically opposed to like science uh, and the evidence that's out there, um, that we force people into these crises of faith, where you know if you if you raise somebody that like all all scientists are evil and they just have this atheistic agenda against you know Christianity, and then they go to like you know a state school and they go to biology class and and, and geology class and realize like oh my goodness, like these people are actually reasonable and kind and have like some pretty good arguments. There's no reason to artificially create this crisis of faith. Right where like our god is big enough that the universe can be 13.9 billion years old and that only makes my god bigger the universe is complicated enough that if by some miracle they do find a, a, a biological explanation for the bombardier beetle that i still believe that it was my god who designed it and so like there is there is no argument from science that terrifies me enough to say like oh I guess my God is explained away. You know, there are lots of different kinds of sciences as well. Mm-hmm. So 
you hearers out there know that we're not just talking about botany and biology and geology, but hopefully we're able to kind of lead you toward the king of all sciences, and that's theology. And so all these things must be held in good tension. Um, but let's, when we talk about the original science, let's go to the actual origins. The OG scientist. The OG science. <laughs> and this is the study of God, which I think is able to answer or to uphold the mystery in a degree that maybe biology, botany, geology, other ologies. Yeah, any final thoughts, Jesse, Steve? I think we just have to remember that there are some things in theology, some things in doctrine that we should die for. Yeah. But creation, the creation account, I don't think is one of those things. I think that's one of those things that will be revealed, just like predestination and free will, when we see Jesus face to face. Yeah. Jesus, yes. Dinosaurs, no. <laughs> Worth dying for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, exactly. yeah. My bad. Like, <laughs> we're not doing so hot today on the whole communication. <laughs> going to lay low for a while. Apparently I need coffee still to catch up with you. You need coffee, Steve. Yes, you do. I just thought like we'd get to the, the, other, the gates of heaven. Okay, Jesus, you were right about that. Dinosaurs, nope, never existed. <laughs> or Peter says, uh, "Hop on the, uh, hop on your pterodactyl of choice, and we'll take you into the." I just hope I don't meet a gates. dinosaur face to face. <laughs> <laughs> and this is Teddy Rex, uh, the one dinosaur who knew Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, thanks for joining us. <laughs>